0: Hi, I'm Max Bergman. And I'm Jonathan Rui. And this is The Europhile, a podcast where we look at Europe through a Washington lens. to another episode of The Eurofile. Today, we will cover the latest developments in the European Union's efforts to continue to fund Ukraine. Then we will turn to a conversation on our sister podcast, Russian Roulette, featuring Catherine Belton on Russian efforts to influence European politics. Catherine Belton is a reporter with The Washington Post, formerly of The Financial Times, who covers Russia and has written extensively on the Russian elite and security services. We hope you enjoy the show. Let's turn to all the drama that is happening right now in Brussels ahead of the February 1st European Council meeting about whether the EU will be able to fund Ukraine at a tune of around 50 billion euros. What's the the current state of play?
1: So uh, and I have to say I'm reporting this live from Europe myself um, to not really from Brussels, but uh, close enough in Italy. So here's, here's what's happening. What we've talked about before is at the December regular summit, EU leaders were uh, able to approve accession talks with Ukraine, but Viktor Orban of Hungary blocked the approval of 50 billion do- uh, euros in aid to Ukraine, which Ukraine desperately needs, especially as as we've also discussed, funding on the US side is stalled as well. In recent days, two potential courses of action that are both pretty serious have been coming out probably at, just taking a guess, uh, leaked on purpose ahead of the f- summit, the extraordinary summit we're going to see in February 1st in Brussels. So here are those two things. And the general idea is other EU leaders are trying to ratchet up pressure on Hungary leading up to that summit. The first one is a threat of that they would publicly uh, withhold all EU funds to Hungary in the future. The idea here is to spook the markets so that they will think um, Hungary is not as good a place to invest for jobs, etc. The currency would get uh, weaker and borrowing costs for Hungary would get higher. So here we kind of see a bit of a turning Orban's blackmail against him from EU leaders. The second option that's been floated, but it's more extreme because that's also why they're calling it a nuclear option, that's Article 7. It's basically uh, removing voting rights for Hungary in the EU institutions. It does require unanimity, so that could be a potential block. but that would be very, very serious. Uh, Although we hear from reports that there's just not a lot of patience left among a lot of EU leaders. They're really tired of Orban not moving on any of this, especially because this keeps blocking the broader approval on the whole budget. So those are the two options that we're seeing here. And what I'd love to hear from you, Max, on your take on this is, do you think leaking those stories is a good way to turn that blackmail on Orban? Or is there a risk of, Counter counter blackmail in a way, or risk of it backfiring.
0: Yeah, so I, I think this is fascinating, and I think maybe to back up, go a little bit earlier in the week, there was also a huge uh, announcement. Uh, or development, when it came to Sweden, uh, Swedish membership of NATO, where the Turkish parliament finally voted to approve, uh, and then Erdogan has signed it, and then uh, lo and behold, uh, the Biden administration has now notified to Congress uh, a sale of F-16s to Turkey, as well as F-35s to Greece, all of which were being sort of tied in with Sweden. But then Orban did something interesting, or Hungarians still haven't uh, confirmed Swedish membership. And Orban invited the Swedish prime minister to come down to Budapest and to talk about uh, a Swedish membership and essentially to try to extract his pound of flesh. And the Swedes said, go jump in a lake. Uh, The Swedish prime minister wasn't going. And then Orban quickly backed down. So I do think there's an element here of sometimes you got to punch the bully in the face. Uh, and then they 'll they 'll back down I think we 've seen that with Hungary a number of times in the past, so I think this leak was quite smart, you know to put my sort of Washington leak hat on. Uh, you know, I don't have any special insight in, in who leaked this and why, but it seems pretty apparent, right? You The European Commission develops like a doomsday plan for Hungary. They leak it to the Financial Times, you know, the financial press, where it's not just, you know, people in Brussels reading, so it didn't go to, you know, political playbook. It went to the Financial Times, hit slight, uh, slightly a water, wider audience. The EU's getting serious about doing this. Uh, and also... To the folks that work on Europe at the Financial Times, so it's also going to hit all the Brussels people. You're not like burying this in in sort of the market news. So I think it was a, a clever leak. It's done on a Sunday, right before everyone's you know coming in for a big Monday run up, where the the EU is basically saying, "Go ahead, Hungary, make my day." You know, I think there's a lot of skepticism you know, in your Europe uh, analyst circles about Article 7, and and you no- noted Article 7 requires unanimity, that's right, but not everyone. It requires 26 of the 27, uh, which obviously, you know, Hungarians don't get to vote on this. And there's sort of this widespread skepticism of, like, no, one. it's going to be impossible to get everyone, and you look at Slovakia with FITSO, um being sort of, you know, populist. I actually think now... My, if the EU is going to throw the book at Orban, now might be the time. And part of it is because, well, yes, Gert Wilders just, you know, sort of won the Dutch elections, but he's not prime minister yet. And you have kind of a window where, okay, you could probably get 20, you know, a, a good a, almost all the EU countries. Now, I think there's some that would just be like concerned about doing Article 7 and be sort of squeamish about that. But let's say you uh, Orban does block... Uh, funding for Ukraine. I do think that that would be a real provocation, seen as a provocation. My f- best guess is the EU tries to hold, goes to hold back funding. But I could see if you get 25 of the 26 countries in it's FITSO holding out to sort of back Orban, that's not where he wants to be. And we just saw him sort of, you know, talk a big game about not supporting Ukraine, then go to Ukraine and say that he supports Ukraine. I think this I think feature I you know don't follow Slovakian politics close enough, but my guess is that he's not doesn't want to repeat what the what Law and Justice just did, what Orban's doing with picking fights with the EU and wants to sort of do what he's gonna do domestically, and maybe that's roll back, you know, lots of rule of law issues and create a problem, but he wants to do that on the on the D L and not uh provoke a fight with Brussels before he's even gotten his his sort of feet on the ground.
1: Yeah, I mean the reversal for Fizzo I thought was really interesting. It shows he's not like Orban or, or you would say not as far gone. I think their, their incentives are a little bit different. Um, I think he would be a little squeamish about the idea of Article 7 because, as you mentioned, he's trying to pass a bunch of laws that would make it basically l- less punishable to basically do corruption in Slovakia. So... That part to me is a little bit concerning, but there is a little bit of room. I think from looking at it from the U.S. side, as you said, this is the right time for other EU leaders to throw the book at Orban because it's really important for us in Washington to see that EU26 can't stand up to him because that's enough. Like the the demonstration at the summit in December was just not stellar. Even though the accession talks were approved, he had to leave the room this is not a good look for anyone involved that they the only way they get him to approve to anything is okay well you can hide over there while we approve this thing but so i think it's it's a really it's a really important move for them to do and i it's really good that you brought up the sweden nato thing because that's another thing orban hasn't delivered on that he promised unlike ukraine funding which was something he was more um, more visibly against but I don't see him putting a lot of pressure on the parliament speaker to bring back an extraordinary session because they're not going to be in session for another month in Budapest. So that delays uh, Sweden's accession even further. So from the U.S. side, I think it's really important to see real movement on this.
0: Yeah, and I, I think, look, I think the game that Orban's playing here is, I think he's going to back down. I think that he will probably see this as, um, maybe not the best time for a, a knockdown, dragout confrontation, and that the EU demonstrating its seriousness and potentially willing to have that confrontation is not something he really wants. So m- my expectation here is that what he clearly wants is to sort of punt the fight, where he wants the EU to – so if, he'll vote to approve, but then every year – they have to come back for Hungary's approval. And I think what Orban is hoping and thinking is that, look, what's going to happen is the far right is going to do really well in European elections. Maybe we have Gerd Wilders so I, I, uh, as prime minister, maybe a few others. And so I have like a a, a posse of people inside the EU, uh, EU leaders that, that will sort of take my side and then Donald Trump will win, win election in the US and uh, and then we can vote then to block this money and all have supporters. So I think that's what he's, his game is, that if we can sort of give uh, uh, token approval for a year and then it will be revisited, um, that then he'll be able to potentially hold money and, and take take that hostage. And I think the EU might cut that deal because it means that the funding passes. But if there is no deal, the EU will still find a way. And they'll find a way, I think, as 26 countries, which is why I think – I'm not that worried about European funding for Ukraine, uh, at least in terms of this package. Uh, and I do think that, you know, the U.S. is a, a much more of a concern. That said, th- this funding will be provided through the course of the EU's budget cycle through 2027. But this is not security assistance. This is not the security money. There's still uh, a need to top up the European peace facility to increase funding for that. There's lots of debate about what should happen with that. Uh, I think there's real beginning to be real recognition that all the EU's rhetoric of will be with Ukraine, whatever it takes, is not actually living up to the needs of where uh, of, of what Ukraine needs. That there's a lot of more spending on defense, but that's going to things like F-35, which are irrelevant to uh, Ukraine's war fighting effort. Good for NATO, not necessarily good for Ukraine. So I do think that there's going to be more pressure coming on the EU, particularly if U.S. funding uh, uh, doesn't materialize uh, in the next weeks and months.
1: Well, it's also on the on the military spending. Thierry Breton is going to be uh, speaking to Atlantic Council today, as of recording, as of Monday. And part of his speech previewed in Playbook was that he would call for whatever comes out is produced in terms of ammunition should go to Ukraine first and then second to other other EU members. I think that's an, that's an interesting call. Uh, your point on the resolve across Europe to provide funding is a good one because we see in Italy, for example, the five-star movement in Lega have now aligned their position on wanting to provide less aid to Ukraine, which is against actually the brothers, brothers of Italy with Giorgio Meloni as the prime minister. So there's, there's a shift there that's that's starting to appear. And finally, on the the possibility of doing it nationally or national guarantees for this funding, it is possible and they would probably go there if any other solution is impossible. It just takes more time because that would require some national parliaments to approve this funding for the national level to provide it. And that's just not the preferred option.
0: Yeah, I, I think one thing to maybe watch over the coming weeks and months is that, uh, it does appear there's a bit of, a developing kindred relationship emerging within the EU between, I think, an unlikely couple, uh, which is, uh, in Estonia, between the Estonians and the French, and, and Thierry Breton, who's French, but EU commissioner, uh, has thrown out a hundred. Uh, the EU borrowing a hundred billion for defense. This is actually an idea put out by Kaya Kalis. This is actually also an idea that I have thrown out in almost everything I've written over the last like three, four years. That if the EU can borrow for COVID, it can borrow for defense and. Uh, And I think that if there is a demand for the EU to take more action militarily, and the basic issue in a piece that I've recently written for CSIS uh, highlights that the challenge is is basically giving money to defense contractors, that they want long-term contracts to ramp up ammunition production. They're right now producing as much as they can, but to open a new factory you know, they don't operate like a normal private sector uh, where they basically want to reduce their risks. And they're worried if they open, you know, a a number of new factories, then what if the war ends in a year or two? Suddenly no one's buying ammunition anymore. So that's their concern. Whether we like it or not, the fact is they're not going to do it unless the money is provided. And that is putting the money under contract. And so the EU's ammunition effort, I think, has been really good. It's helped, uh, I think, create sort of the framework for the EU to ramp up production. But from my understanding, what's missing is countries coming in and putting down the contracts because no Ministry of Defense or many of the European ministries of defense don't want to buy ammo for the next eight years. They want to buy F-35s. They want to buy new tanks or whatever it is. They have all these competing priorities. And this is where the EU could come in and just say, here, business, here's the money, ramp up production. And I think that that's something that we might get to. And then how does the EU finance that? Well... Borrowing, I think, has to be something that is looked at and is on the table and you're starting to hear murmurs of that. Um, but with that, I think we should uh, maybe wrap this up and we'll turn to our conversation with Katherine Belton. Welcome back. I'm Max Bergman. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Maria Snegavaya, and you're listening to Russian Roulette. Today, we're joined by a very special guest, Catherine Belton. Catherine is an international investigative reporter at The Washington Post reporting on Russia. From 2007 to 2013, Catherine worked as the Moscow correspondent for the Financial Times, and she also worked for, as a legal correspondent for the paper as well. Uh, she has written for the Moscow Times, Business Week, and Reuters. In 2009, she was shortlisted for the British Press Award's Business and Finance Journalist of the Year prize, and last but not least, Catherine is the author of the acclaimed book *Putin's People: How the KGB Took Back Russia and Then Took on the West*. It was a New York Times Critics' Book of 2020 and a Book of the Year for the Times, the Economist, and the Financial Times. It's really an, an outstanding book, and so we'll talk somewhat about the the book or a lot of the themes that that Catherine wrote about in the book. But we'll also talk about one of the, some of the some of Catherine's uh, recent reporting. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us on on. Russian Roulette.
2: Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be here.
0: It's great to have you. And I want to maybe start with a recent story that you wrote uh, for The Washington Post, looking at Russian efforts to perhaps interfere in French politics. There's lots of elections happening in 2024 across the world. But one place that I think is perhaps particularly prone to election interference is the European parliamentary elections that are going to happen in June. And I was wondering, maybe you could sort of talk a little bit about or summarize uh, what some of your reporting showed you about Russian efforts uh, in France in particular.
2: Um, I think it's very clear that the Kremlin is, is gearing up now ahead of this uh, big election year this this year. Like you mentioned, there's the European parliamentary elections in June. Um, Jamie Rubin, uh, the head of the U.S. State Department's Office of Disinformation, uh, I think said last week that they believe that Russia is preparing major disinformation campaigns for this year for the elections to try and undermine European unity on support for Ukraine. And I guess uh, my reporting uh, covers sort of documents and Kremlin operations, which kind of predate this year. I mean, the the documents that I was able to get access to, um, there were some Kremlin documents showing that there's basically a, a cell of political strategists uh, working for the Kremlin, running troll farms, uh, operating mostly now through social media, because uh, of course, Russia today is, is now banned in Europe, the main Kremlin propaganda arms. But essentially, they're seeking to propagate uh, messaging, which undermines uh, support in France for Ukraine, talking about how uh, you know sanctions against Russia deepening, leading France into a deep social and economic crisis, that the US economy is benefiting from all this when the French economy is withering. And also, of course, seeking to kind of drive the point home that France has now donated so many weapons to uh, Ukraine doesn't have enough weaponry left to defend itself, a view that has been echoed by quite a few senior former generals from the French military and the military intelligence services who have been echoing many of the Kremlin talking points and very often hold quite radically pro-Kremlin views.
0: Right. I think as the Kremlin sort of looks for soft spots in European support, I mean, in France, you have Marie Le Pen polling, doing quite well in the polls, Macron being somewhat unpopular and the sense that there's, there's a a weak point there. I guess one question for you is, do you think that the efforts on disinformation will bear as much fruit for the Kremlin as perhaps they did in the previous decade in 2016, and also Russian interference in in the 2017 election? Because haven't we become somewhat aware of Russian tactics? Uh, So do you think we've developed a degree of resilience, or are the Russians figuring out ways to influence us in new ways?
2: I think they are, and as you mentioned, in, in France they still have a very uh, persuasive and popular channel uh, by Marine Le Pen. Uh, she, her party, is is set to do very well in the European Parliamentary elections. It's currently polling at. Thirty-eight percent, eight percentage points ahead of Macron's party. You know they've had pretty steady uh, support for the European Parliamentary elections, so they could really turn things around. Since the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, they've sought somewhat to distance themselves uh, from uh, Russia a little more. They have condemned Russia's aggression there, but crucially, national rally on many key votes on Ukraine and support for Ukraine in the French Parliament. They've either abstained or voted against and you still see Marine Le Pen regularly criticising the sanctions regime and so on. I think she's very much uh, determined now to have a more respectable face having been very badly tarnished in previous elections for accepting money uh, a, a big eight-nine eight, 9 million euro uh, loan directly from a Russian bank in the 2014 elections and another of more mysterious origin from an Abu Dhabi financial institution. So she uh, And I think in the last uh, elections in 2022, Macron really rubbed that home. He basically said, well, when you go and see Putin, you're essentially meeting your banker. You know, and I think ever since then, you know, she's been trying a bit harder to distance herself, but uh, observers there are very much aware that were she to come to power in France, that could rapidly change. And of course, you've got uh, political operators like one former National Rally. MEP, who I was profiling a bit for this uh, previous story, this guy called Jean-Luc Schaffhauser, who actually organized uh, these loans from Marine Le Pen, and he still has deep contacts right across Russia's far right, happens to rent out part of his house in Strasbourg to Russia's number two diplomat in Paris, uh, a guy called Ilyas Sobotin. So he's re- receiving regular funding and support Uh, almost directly from the Russian embassy. And he was talking about the plans uh, he was hatching to basically put together a list of far-right MPs ahead of the European parliamentary elections that would basically prepare to promote more pro-Russian lines that would uh, seek to end Western weapons supplies to Ukraine. So the disinformation campaigns that Russia engages in, they can, you know, they have many avenues. And I was talking to uh, Thomas Gourmand, who is the head of uh, a big international affairs institute in Paris. And he was saying that the Russian accounts right now in France have become so increasingly visible. And these are really, despite efforts across Europe to root out and kind of expose these type of operations. We know that since the Russia's invasion, uh, Russia today and Sputnik are banned. So this most immediate propaganda outlet is now closed down, but Russia uh, propaganda is still pervasive on social media. France in particular set up its own watchdog, an outlet called Viginum, which has tried to expose some of the more obvious Russian operations. There was one which was called Doppelganger because you had Russians uh, basically cloning the media, of cloning the pages of well-known media like Le Monde and ultimately, eventually, even the French foreign ministry sort of running fake news, they're basically depicting the Ukrainian government as Nazi regime or, or sort of railing against sanctions and the deliberating effect it was having on the French economy. And this French uh, state digital watchdog did uh, manage to kind of, uh, with the help of uh, research by Meta, managed to expose that this was essentially a Russian disinformation operation. They found like IP addresses and metadata, which showed that these uh, sites were being run out of Russia and that they were also being hosted by a network called recent reliable news which is also a known russian front this recent reliable news was being used to amplify some of the messaging so yeah i think we have gotten better exposing some of this stuff but uh the russians have also you know gotten good themselves at finding ways around our restrictions, as we've seen so clearly in how they operate to bypass Western sanctions. So, yeah, I guess it's always a question of playing playing catch up, playing whack-a-mole, because, you know, you close down one avenue and then Russians will will find another.
3: On that note, honestly, I'm almost stunned, even if I probably shouldn't, given that I've studied populism for almost a decade by now, as to how malleable and flexible they are in the messaging. At first, when uh, the war restarted, shall we say, in 2022, many of the populist leaders, Matteo Salvini's Lega and Giorgio Meloni's Fratelli d'Italia, actually seem to have shifted away from uh, this embrace or affinity for Russia and Putin in particular. And so the hope was that finally this bromance is over. But it seems like things are unfortunately going back to where they used to be. Is there, like, fundamentally certain extremely, um, incredibly attractive about putting Western to off, offer to this group? Maybe it's like their anti-transatlantic alliance orientation. Do you see that more as um, temporary uh, sort of confluence of interests uh, because of the... Uh, maybe certain economic problems that they're facing. um, I'm asking also because uh, it seems that depending on which messages uh, the Russian propaganda is selling in Europe, it can be less or more uh, successful when at the start of the war uh, they tried to sell more uh, like Russian version of the war. It did not stick. But now that they are focusing more attention on domestic troubles in European societies, economic troubles, they seem to be more successful. Is that, the, is that why? Is that because the economic situation in Europe is not so good and that gives advantage to these populist leaders, again, to pick up this agenda?
2: Yeah, I think we can. I've seen from uh, some of the documents that the Kremlin political strategists are essentially monitoring all the time, very closely changing political and economic winds in these European countries. They focus particularly on France, Germany, and Italy, because these are seen as countries that are most vulnerable to uh, Russian propaganda, and that there are kind of longer, deep standing ties between factions of the establishment and the Russian regime. I think, you know, I guess it it depends for each group. Um, We know for Le Pen that having accepted that loan in 2014, though she now says it's it's paid back, it did cement some quite uh, deep links. And, you know, she kind of penciled into the founding charter of National Front, as it was then called, but now it's called National Rally, that France is seeking kind of a more independent status outside of US hegemony, something that's music to uh, kind of Putin's ears. And that's Kind of a, a confluence of interest things. But I also think that perhaps Marine Le Pen might not have thought of that for herself. I mean, of course, this is the standing vein of, of French politics, going back to Charles de Gaulle, when he sought to forge a closer alliance with the then Soviet Union, uh, so as to chart a more independent path for France outside of, of US influence. So uh, Russia can basically manipulate and use that because it's a big part of the French establishment. And elite, which uh, sees itself or wants France to be a great power in its own right and wants to return to those roots. So I think France is that part of the equation. This is what Russia has to offer them. Uh, For Italy, again, it's and also when you speak to MPs from uh, AFD, who I was speaking to earlier last year, because I was also working on Russian influence operations in Germany, and they very much also kind of buy into this uh, kind of agenda of having greater sovereignty outside of what they see as Europe being under the kind of influence and power of of the U.S. They want sovereignty for their own country. And of course, you know, this plays to their own agenda. But the Kremlin is is very adept at sort of massaging their egos and the egos of the uh, electorate. And so these can be used as as kind of key issues for them. And I guess we saw Alice Weidel, the head of the AFD, In Germany, she recently gave an an interview to the FT in which she's still calling for Germany to exit the EU despite Britain's sorry experiment with that story. I mean, so these are issues that still resonate uh, with these type of parties. And of course, yeah, and I think the Kremlin is is watching all the time looking for the the weak points uh, in Europe. And unfortunately, now there are many because we have Issues with migration, issues with the economy. I think inflation is, is now lessening, so perhaps that's a bullet dodged. Um, but I think most recently, of course, they've been focused on uh, the increasing tension over the Israel-Hamas uh, conflict. And, uh, you know, we saw direct Russian efforts to interfere by the French authorities caught this uh, Moldovan couple they believed were acting on the orders of a pro-Russian businessman who were painting Stars of David across the streets of Paris, hoping to inflame tensions between them was, Muslim and Jewish communities. And so this is something that they really can do. And I guess we've we've, you know, and also Russia is now deepening its ties with Iran. So, you know, we don't know, you know, what support they're giving to some of the pro-Palestinian protests. And the I think they just basically see an awful lot of opportunity now in the West and also. Because of the overall change in the atmosphere towards continued Western support for Ukraine, they're seeing cracks in the alliance with Hungary and Slovakia becoming much more active in kind of trying to reject this in Europe and, of course, in the US with the US Congress completely stymied stymied by all the political infighting.
3: Yes, yeah, certainly a very unfortunate moment uh, mm. two years into this horrible war. Mm. Uh, as a follow-up on that, Catherine, uh, recently Krista Grozev an investigator from the inside and mm. in Belenki, gave an interview saying that they also, in addition, on top of everything you listed, also exposed a very active network of Russian spies that that is penetrating everywhere, including into the Russian diaspora groups uh, that obviously are much larger these days uh, in Europe, and the West more broadly. Do you know anything of, about it? Is Kremlin also intensifying its effort at maybe penetrating some of the important groups in order to perhaps push forward its agenda?
2: Yeah, I think this is something that we have to watch very carefully. I mean, I think in the first year of the war, Western governments really took great efforts. Uh, they began expelling Russian diplomats as they thought one way of reducing Russian influence and espionage operations and one way of making them more difficult. But of course, again, Russia adapts. And this is certainly not the only way it can conduct espionage through diplomats acting under official cover. They have many, many other channels, whether this be through Russian businessmen or, as you say, agents within Russian diasporas or Chechen diasporas. There was uh, the the French government uh, was also, you know, very worried about elements within the Chechen diaspora recently, particularly over the Israel-Hamas conflict. And we've seen the French interior minister basically announce that he's seeking to expel 39 Chechens from France, and he's talking to Russia about this because he's worried over the radicalization. And from what I understand from the background, that there is concern that elements within the Chechen diaspora can be manipulated by the the Chechen authorities or by the Kremlin because they have relatives in Chechnya who can be kidnapped or pressured or so on. And I, I guess it goes back to, you know, the age-old adage that anyone, any Russian national who still has business interests or relatives in Russia is vulnerable to blackmail from the Kremlin and can be forced into acting as a agent of influence for the Kremlin.
0: It strikes me that one of the problems, quote, unquote, for for European politics is that in Europe, there are rules for running political campaigns. Most countries have pretty tight spending standards, there's money is limited in European politics, there's tighter regulations. And while I think that's sort of beneficial from the no holds barred uh, landscape of, of US politics, it means that it doesn't take a lot to in some ways distort the political landscape, and especially in terms of funding. And so I guess there's, you know, a question of how much we know and don't know, right? So there's, been exposure of Mario Penn's loans. But I think there is a sort of bigger question of how much money there is actually being funneled into European politics. There's, you know, I think, four years ago, right before the European elections, there was a famous sting operation that brought down the Austrian government where the Austrian Freedom Party, which was part of the coalition with Sebastian Kurz, was exposed in a sting operation where they were essentially being offered money in visa, or they were being offered money for their party. And they would get positive political coverage uh, if they were to send government contracts to someone purporting to be the, I think, niece of a, of a prominent Russian figure. And that brought down the Austrian government. But that, I think, demonstrated that uh, I think some broader concern that what what don't we know that's happening in European politics? And is there, I think, a um, a broader effort on the part of european intelligence agencies and law enforcement to perhaps crack down and police their election space in a, in a bit more rigor than than perhaps there was during the last decade.
2: Yeah, I think I'm afraid it, it, you're you're right I and mean, there's an awful lot that we don't know because Russia has so many imaginative ways to move money across the globe nowadays. I, yes. Le Pen was caught red-handed taking the loan uh, directly by Schaffhauser from the Russian bank. And then since then, they saw, also sought more imaginative ways. But I think it really left them on the hook. I mean, Schaffhauser told me that, you know, he's boasting a bit. He said national rally wouldn't exist if it wasn't for me. And the fact that I organized this loan, that they were on the verge of bankruptcy. But that was done in a very open way. I mean, we don't know, uh, for instance, about how AFD is funded. We know, uh, for instance, there are concerns about Wirecard, for instance, the big German payments system that was basically exposed as a, a massive fraud. Uh, cooking its books with a two billion euro uh, hole in its accounts. You know, that's since been exposed now as a front for, you know, funding Russian intelligence operations. And we don't know, perhaps some of the money going through the massive wire card scam could be going to fund political parties. We just don't know. And, uh, you know, we've been trying to track this ourselves. But, you know, I think European law enforcement authorities face a very tricky time trying to follow this because, I mean, as you know, there are so many offshore schemes that can be used where identities are hidden. And also, I think, uh, you know, sort of one of the ways that can be used are also kind of basically cash schemes. You have cash couriers running driving around on motorbikes, basically handing over cash. And that's, of course, also impossible to trace. You know, as well, there were investigations into in here in the UK about uh, how Aaron Banks was giving his loan to the Brexit campaign in, in 2016. I think there had been some investigations, which I'm not sure ever went anywhere, into his interests in diamonds in South Africa. Diamonds are also another way of funneling money in an untraceable Way. Um, so I guess, yeah, I think it's a very big issue for European law enforcement. And I just, don't, I'm not really sure if they're equipped to deal with it.
0: One of the things that your book, Poon's People, was, I think, so outstanding at is really looking at the, the Russian oligarch class and how they were oftentimes used by the Kremlin or vehicles for the Kremlin to pursue their interests. There's been a ton of effort over the last two years in sanctioning Russian oligarchs. London, it seems, has gone from being sort of the capital of Russian oligarchdom and in in some ways has now become not a great place for prominent wealthy Russians. Do you think the eviction of oligarchs, while maybe not uh, having the strategic effect that many hope for of of causing Putin to sort of soften or change his, his policy approaches, may have built up our resilience, reduced some of the Kremlin's levers of influence or efforts To vehicles to kind of influence European politics. Do you think that's had a a substantial impact?
2: Yeah, I think it had, because I think otherwise, if some of these Russian billionaires had not been sanctioned, they'd still be propagating uh, Kremlin propaganda or Kremlin soft power uh, strategies and, and so on. I mean, I think, you know, we wouldn't know who, and they'd be free to lobby and free to sort of give money to whichever MPs they wanted to. And now, of course, they are tarred and no MP can be seen accepting money from them. So I I think it's had an enormous impact. I mean, of course, they're going to seek ways around the sanctions. But I think, you know, the direct way in which they have interacted with kind of Western institutions and MPs in the past is, is now pretty much cut off for many of these guys. Like, uh, you know, of course, uh, people like Michael Friedman, Pyotr Aven, who spent decades building ties in the West. Of course, they deny close connections with the Kremlin. But we know that Pyotr Abin himself, in his interviews with Robert Mueller during the FBI's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 elections, admitted that he'd regularly meet with Putin and receive implicit instructions from him. And if they weren't carried out, there would be implications and consequences. So, you know, we know that these guys, basically, they have to follow a Kremlin agenda in order to hold on to their businesses and for the Alpha Group guys, this is billions of dollars at stake. And they have spent a great deal of time and effort embedding themselves in Western societies and building reputations from which they can act as a, a voice box, essentially, for a Kremlin agenda. So I think it's it's made some things much harder. But of course, there are still gaps. I mean, look at uh, Raman Abramovich, for instance, another guy who has since become an official Channel for the Kremlin, at least at the beginning of the war, when he was acting as an envoy for Putin in the initial peace talks with the Ukrainians and still is acting now on some for the Kremlin on some of the prisoner exchanges. He's sanctioned in, in Europe and in the UK, but he's not sanctioned in the US where we know from uh, some of the ICIJ investigations and the OCCRP investigations that he has billions and billions of dollars invested in the US through hedge funds and private equity funds and nobody's watching where that money's going.
3: Well, I guess uh, I'll have to now ask about the elephant, <laughs> the inevitable elephant in the room, <clears throat> which is the forthcoming presidential election of the United States and the possibility of uh, Donald Trump to get reelected. In your great book, uh, People*, you also, among other things, expose possible network connection of these uh, Russian uh, networks, funeral money from a former Soviet Union, certain KGB networks, oligarch networks into Donald Trump's empire. How much do we know about it? And uh, essentially, how how worried shall we be uh, given that there's a very real possibility that uh, Donald Trump may again become... Uh, the President of the United States. Will that provide Russians potentially more leverage going forward?
2: Yeah, I think there's still an awful lot, unfortunately, that we don't know about the ways that Russia was uh, funneling money into the Trump organization. Yes, I tried to do some of this. And there's been a lot of public reporting uh, as well beyond my book about how the Trump organization was kind of uh, building close ties through Felix Sater and Bayrock Group, who were receiving a lot of their money and funding from Russian uh, operations. And also, we know that some of his biggest tenants were mafia guys from Russia and the connections themselves of Felix Sater and Fotovi Karif, you know, the, the guys who founded Bayrock Group who were building towers uh, for Trump, forming the basis of, of some of his main sources of income. They were building towers in New York, Miami and, and Canada and elsewhere so that link is clear we still don't know there's still a big gap in our understanding of what was going on in deutsche bank um why deutsche bank's private banking arm was giving all that money to trump even after you know he uh, reneged on paying back the commercial banking arm, and I think there should be still greater investigation of this. But it's almost as if, you know, in terms of Russian influence operations in the US, the damage is already done, and the roots are already very deeply embedded And I'm not sure Russia really needs to do much more because, you know, we can already see very clearly that the U.S. is heading towards a period of deep internal political instability. And, you know, uh, Trump uh, very much looks like the number one candidate for Republicans, despite all the lawsuits and everything that's being thrown at him. And I think the seeds have already been sown. I think we might see Russian disinformation operations trying to provoke further unrest but again the Russia may be banking on instability in the US basically undermining any further support for Ukraine or and basically undermining the US's own position in in the world order going forward but it's also a bit dangerous for Russia as well because too much unpredictability can be a bad thing as well
3: and I think uh, that's what the U.S. administration actually very aptly used, right? They prepared by leaking intel that they had, for example, about Russia's preparations to uh, the invasion of 2022. They actually were yes. able to uh, eliminate the advantage. Perhaps the last question, Catherine, this year in particular is a confluence of multiple elections in Europe and the United States. I actually estimate more than a dozen, right? Including the EU parliament election, et cetera. Are there any maybe... Suggestions, maybe certain, you know, as a roadmap. What do we do to potentially enhance our resilience in the West, given how important this moment is, you know, for Ukraine support? And actually, the fact that there is this is going to be potentially a lot of points of vulnerability for the Kremlin to exploit.
2: Yeah, that's a really tough question. Of course, you know, I think main thing is is making sure people are aware of the propaganda campaigns, the disinformation campaigns, and yes, trying to expose these channels of, of financing as much as possible. And I think, of course, it's it's very important what's going on in Europe at the moment in trying to es- essentially kind of uh, find ways around the attempts of Viktor Orbán, which is essentially the the Kremlin's within the EU to block any further financing for Ukraine. And I think it's it, it's just important to bear in mind that essentially the West's credibility and its standing in the global order now is on the line. And basically, you know, we, we know that Putin has been taking aim liberal democracies for a long time now. And he basically himself said he was doing so in an interview with the FT, I think in 2019, when he said liberal democracies are now obsolete. And we hear this from many of his his proxies. And and these are the democracies that pose a danger to his own regime. But I think unfortunately, the West has got a lot to do to catch up, because I think we have a tendency to be complacent, a tendency to think that we can return to business as usual, and how things were before the war. Um, I think probably what is most important of all right now is to, especially if we see the Ukraine conflict is key to basically the underpinnings and, and making sure that other uh, rogue states and hostile states aren't encouraged to further impunity and, and don't believe that they too, if the West fails in Ukraine, that they can start attacking any country that they want. You know, we have to get our act together. I think we hear this now from from many voices that, um, you know, we need to turn around industrial production and, and be consistent.
0: Catherine, thank you so much for joining us on on Russian Roulette. It's uh, been a real pleasure to have you, and we hope to have you back on our podcast soon.
1: That's it for today's episode. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. You may also be interested in our sister podcast, Russian Roulette, which covers the latest on Vladimir Putin's Russia and the ongoing war in Ukraine. Our thanks to our producer, Sean Falk, and to Otto Svensson for coordinating and researching this episode. We'll be back soon with another assessment of Europe through a Washington lens. Until next time.